Welcome everyone to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren. I'm excited to be joined today by Steve Malloy. Steve is a recognized leader in the fight against junk science with more than 20 years of experience and is credited with popularizing the term junk science. He's the founder and publisher of junkscience.com and an environmental and public health consultant. Mr. Malloy is a biostatistician and securities lawyer who has also been a registered securities principal, investment fund manager, nonprofit executive, coal company executive, and print and web columnist on science and business issues. Mr. Malloy served on the EPA transition team for the Trump administration. He's the author of numerous books and articles about health and environmentalism, including his latest book, Scare Pollution, What and How to Fix the EPA. You can follow him on social media, on Twitter at Junk Science, and you can go to junkscience.com. Steve, thank you so much for joining, and welcome to Unsafe Space. Thanks for having me. I, I guess, uh, you know, as I mentioned before the show, I've been wanting to talk to you about climate change and 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 uh, environmentalism generally, but this latest documentary from Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs really provided an opportunity to to get your thoughts because... Frankly, it it wasn't. It's called Planet of the Humans, and it wasn't at all what I expected to hear from Michael Moore or Jeff Gibbs. And for those of you who don't know Jeff Gibbs, he's an environmentalist, and he was a producer with Michael Moore on, I think, Fahrenheit 9/11 and Bowling for Columbine. Um, how did this documentary strike you, first of all? Well, uh, I, I agree with you. Know, is not what I was expecting at all. I thought Planet of the Humans is going to be another horror story about how humans are destroying the planet. And it was mostly the opposite. It was mostly about how I, I have this rule is called Malloy's Law, where green equals fraud. And it's mostly about green equals fraud. Uh, yeah, there's a lot, lot of apocalyptic talk and you know people hating, population growth kind of stuff in the movie. But the bulk of the movie is about how renewable energy isn't really renewable. Renewable energy depends on coal, natural gas. Uh, you know, has a particular focus on biomass and how biomass, you know, we're chopping down all these trees uh, uh, and then releasing even more CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. Um, and then, you know, Michael Moore, uh, film, uh, Jeff Gibbs' film goes into the funding sources and how people like Bill McKibben of 350.org and Al Gore and his partner Dave Blood and Robert Kennedy are sort of profiteering off biomass. It was really quite amusing. Yeah, I uh, I felt almost so they. I mean, they tore down the heroes of the environmental movement, both personal heroes and uh, technology technological heroes. Um, they were largely presented as charlatans, um, but I did I did I did feel like they still they still bought into the humans are horrible premise. Oh yeah, no, there's no question about that. I mean, the theme of the uh, movie is you know the apocalypse is is coming, but and, and, you know, our solution is these frauds. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, I mean, they, they clearly hate people. They think that, you know, fossil fuels are destroying the planet. Of course, they think that now that renewable energy is destroying the planet as well. So I'm not quite sure what their solution is. It seems to be to be easier to just accept the reality that, you know, there are more people living a higher standard of living than ever before. And that's great. And our environment is really cleaner than ever before. That's great, too. Yeah, I, I definitely got the sense that the only possible solution you could, uh, the only conclusion you could draw in terms of solution is, well, I guess we need to dismantle modern civilization. Like that's the, that's the, the kind of takeaway. Um, but, but let's walk through some of these things because um, I think a lot of people, you know, I think you and I are probably more in alignment on our view of a lot of the environment, a lot of environmental issues than than someone like uh, a typical Sierra Club member would be. But even for yeah. people who really care about or or buy into a lot of the environmental um, messaging, this is should be eye opening for them as well. Um, and maybe one of the first things we should talk about is energy density, because I didn't hear that addressed specifically. But that, to me, from a scientific perspective, is kind of the underlying uh, big idea that that causes all of these problems. Well, yeah. So um, energy density, you know, uh, people think that uh, biofuels are great because 
Um, you know, when you do all the calculations, uh, you know, there's they, they seem to emit fewer greenhouse gases, but that's really not true. I mean, you have to actually burn more to get the same amount of energy out of, say, you know, a gallon of gasoline or a gallon of conventional diesel. So there's really no savings going on. It's just more expensive and, um, and less economical. So they so let's in the in the movie he biomass was one of the big biomass burning was one of the big uh, devils, um, which yeah. r- rightly so right he he covered I think um, I think they one of the the people in the movie uh, from the Energy Justice Network which I'd never heard of says that if we cut every tree in the United States it would be able to power the country for a year then what happens. <laughs> um, can you talk about the the sustainability of biomass burning generally? Because a lot of these plants aren't are also burning natural gas. Yeah, I, I don't know whether his calculation is true. It may 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 very well be, uh, but you know, historically, one of the reasons that uh, say Britain switched to coal was because they couldn't afford to cut down all the trees. I mean, they would have had to cut down all the trees to power Britain in the in the uh, you know eighteenth and nineteenth century. So. Fortunately, they had a lot of coal and, you know, there's nothing else to do with fossil fuels like oil and natural gas and coal. You might as well burn them for energy. And the good news out of that is the CO2 emissions. Well, they help plants grow. Uh, And, um, you know, over the last uh, uh, 40 years, you know, NASA has been taking satellite photos of the planet. And this has shown that the Earth is actually greener than ever before because we've had a little bit of warming and there's more CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, It makes absolutely no sense to go and just level forests for energy. I mean, we have other sources of energy. We have, there's nothing else to do with oil and gas and coal. Yeah. You might as well burn them for energy and whatever other, you know, byproducts you can make from them. Well, and this seems to be also one of the the odd things is the the standard. It I think a lot of, for a lot of lay people, the standard that really resonates with them is human flourishing. They, they, they're they concerned about when people say, um, hey, there's going to be massive global warming. Um, it's always presented as catastrophic, which is not clear that it would be catastrophic mm-hmm. anyway, even if it was the numbers that they said it was. Um, but it's never, it's never couched in terms of like, well, what's best for humans? It's always couched in terms of the, our standard is to take a snapshot of where the earth is right now and we have to preserve it. Which seems like a fool's errand. Well, it is a fool's errand. I mean, uh, you know, whether you like it or not, the earth is changing, the population is growing, there's nothing to be done about that. Uh, these people who are concerned that too many people are destroying the planet, I don't know how they go about deciding who gets to live and who gets to die or not be born. And I'm not quite sure of the morality of all that anyway. Um, you know, the reality, you know, we've, this Malthusian mentality has been around for several hundred years, if not longer, and it's always been overcome by technology. And, you know, yeah, if you just take today's technology and project forward to 2100, well, you wonder, like, well, how are we going to get there? Well, of course, we'll develop the technologies necessary. I mean, there's plenty of places to grow food. There's plenty of water. Water's the most abundant substance um, on the planet. There's plenty of everything. We have, you know, fracking unleashed. You know, we had peak oil before fracking. Now, now with fracking, we've got oil that's almost for free. Yep. So, uh, you know, the Malthusians, the doomsayers, they always um, ignore, uh, you know, technology, and you know, to that's why they're always wrong. So, this it's interesting that you bring this up because uh, in the movie they present two sides uh, as irrational. One side is the environmentalist movement that is relying on solar and wind to, quote, save us from our our own destruction. And they present that as a fantasy. It's not going to happen. But then they present the other side as people who say, well, we'll never run out of anything. We shouldn't shouldn't worry at all. We'll never run out of anything. And when you put it that way, it sounds irrational. Like, obviously, we could run out of stuff. Um, but I guess, I guess what strikes me is as a free market guy, I've, I've said this to my, my daughter a few times, like if, if we let the free market operate, we will never sell the last barrel of oil because it will be too expensive. (laughs) If you, 
If you let things operate, we might run out of particular resources, but replacements will naturally come along as those resources, as the supply of resources goes down, the demand for um, uh, whatever they were providing goes up and suddenly the economics of alternates change. Like all this stuff kind of happens. It's unclear to me why we have to run around like the sky is falling, like, like suddenly we're gonna tomorrow mistakenly, you know, pull the last barrel of oil from the ground and oops. Well, no, that's right. And, and as a corollary, um, you know, if, if we're going to limit our consumption of oil today so that people can use it in the future, well, I mean, in the future, then they're going to limit the use of oil so people in the future can use You know, where do you stop? <laughs> right. It just doesn't make any sense, right? Right. It also strikes me as an interesting philosophical uh, premise that people are bad. Like I, I view more people as a great thing because people come with innovation. Someone's going to invent a way to make cold fusion, not like actually economically viable someday. Someone somewhere is going to be born. That's going to help us usher in new forms of energy. And if people are only viewed, which I think the environmentalists do, if they're only viewed as a burden on the planet, <laughs> we'll never reach these uh, technological breakthroughs that we need. Yeah. Well, number one, I, I don't I don't know how they set themselves up as getting to decide who lives, dies and is born. I just think that's morally wrong to start with. I mean, they're lucky enough to be born. Uh, how do they get to decide the fate of others? Um, number two, I, I have this theory, sort of the theory of, you know, great men and I guess great women. Uh, there's a handful of people uh, throughout history who have brought us to where we are now. Most of us are just sort of workers, <laughs> you know, I implementing their ideas. Uh, like, you know, Einstein's one. Uh, people have had great ideas and, and um, you know, they're, they're what, what has made us through. And if you're going to go through just culling people, not letting people be born, I mean, how do you know who you're culling? Uh, you, you, you might call the very person you're just describing who's going to come up with the next great solution. We just don't know. So I, it's, just, it's just wrong on all counts. Well, and it also, I mean, especially for this group of people tends to view themselves as humanitarians. And when I, when I look at it, I, I look at, you know, most of these people are in comfy first world positions. They go to Starbucks or Pete's or whatever and make sure they buy fair trade and they've yeah. got a pretty comfy life. Um, but when they talk about limiting accessibility to cheap, I mean, cheap energy is what has built yep. our society. I mean, it's, it's one of the pillars of modern civilization. There's a lot of places in the world where they're still um, burning trees uh, to heat their homes. They're breathing in horrible gases. They can't afford uh, power that's not intermittent to keep hospitals and refrigeration running. It seems like those people are the people that you're punishing the most if you're going to start banning this stuff. Well, you know, wealth is the key to health and a clean environment. And uh, unfortunately, radical environmentalists are all over the world uh, trying to prevent people from developing and becoming wealthy and being able to afford, you know, cheap energy and the appliances and the homes and uh, the transportation that the rest of us enjoy uh, to have you know, a very high standard of living. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what the logic is. Uh, I think it's very cruel, inhumane, but that is what environmentalists spend their time doing in the third world. Yeah. So maybe we should talk a little bit more. We talked about the biomass, which was one of the one of the major targets in this movie, um, and they they I think pretty effectively uh, took it apart, and um, and that was good. They also though went after wind and solar. Maybe we should just talk about wind for a moment. Um, one of the things they did with both wind and solar was talk about the constituent components necessary to build the equipment. Uh, do you want to talk about that for a moment and the... Well, yeah. So, look, you know, the reality that environmentalists don't like to talk about is that every aspect, every aspect of our lives depends on fossil fuels. Uh, you can't have wind energy and solar energy or hydropower or nuclear power or unicorn power without fossil fuels okay it's everything so a lot of the components uh that go into these you know from the rare earth mineral uh minerals and metals that are mined in china and wherever uh you know you need fossil fuels to do that you can't do that on black and decker battery powered tools it just doesn't happen you can't even build those tools without fossil fuels so there's nothing that happens in our world without fossil fuels and this this notion that uh you know solar energy and electric cars and windmills and whatever 
don't don't require fossil fuels. It's just false. Well, and there's and they there also seems to be this idea that um, it's this permanent solution. Like, well, I have my solar panel and I have my windmill. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, there was a cost of originally with building it, but now that it's done, it's perpetual energy forever. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, solar panels last about 10 years. Windmills, you know, they have a lifespan of about 20 years, and then you can even leave them up as eyesores or replace them, I guess. But you can never really use the land again because if you've ever seen the footprint of a windmill, you know, as they point out in the film, you know, it's like 800 yards of concrete and 45 tons of rebar. Uh, it's just incredible per windmill. Right. And uh, it's, just, it's just incredible. Uh, there's nothing green about them, and then you throw in all the birds they kill. Uh, my God, what's going on? Yeah. One of the things that I, I, you know, I knew about, so one of the problems with these technologies, other than their uh, impact, frankly, their impact to the environment in manufacturing these things, as you just mentioned, uh, also their, their intermittent uh, availability, which I, I knew, I mean, we know that they're intermittently available. Um, but what I didn't realize is that it sounded like almost all of these green energy plants were supplemented by natural gas facilities, all of them. Well, I think Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said that in the movie. They're all really just gas plants with, you know, a facade of solar and wind. Uh, you can't have uh, intermittent energy without backup, and that backup is going to be coal, natural gas, or nuclear. Uh, but a lot of these plants, I mean, you know, the, I, they, they focus on the Ivanpah solar plant that Google owns in the middle of a uh, desert someplace, California. And, um, you know, it has a gas plant to get, get going in the morning. What's so green about that? I mean, that's what, if, if you think that gas is not green, what's so green about that plant? Right. Um, I think I think the uh, I, I looked this up on on Wikipedia before before the show. Uh, <laughs> it, just to turn on in the morning, they emit fifty or forty six thousand metric tons of carbon dioxide, which is like yeah. which is nearly twice the pollution pollution threshold at which power plants and factories in California are required to participate in the state's cap and trade program. So. I, they're not green in any way, even by their oh, own no. standards, they're not. And, right. And, you know, last summer there was this uh, study came out at the University of Chicago done by, by, not by anyone like me, but by uh, Greenies. And, um, you know, they, they concluded that all these states that have these renewable energy mandates, uh, all they've done is increase the price of electricity. They really haven't reduced uh, CO2 emissions at all. The, the other thing that struck me um, was... And I don't know if this is an area that you know a lot about, but it just the numbers just struck me when when they were at in the movie, they one of the things they did was they visited uh, Cedar Street Solar Array in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, and they had a guy there talking about the solar panels, which I assume are typical for for solar panels. And he said, the efficiency of these panels is just under eight percent. And I think about the lifespan of a solar panel, and the efficiency of an eight percent, I just don't see how. I, is that normal? Or are they normally that inefficient? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of those panels, um, you know, to to power. Like, I, I think they had. I, don't, I, I can't remember the exact number of panels they had to power ten houses, but it was a, it was a huge field. And the guy said that you know, if you wanted to power the entire city of Lansing, you know, basically the whole country would have to have solar panels. Um, it reminds me uh, about 10, 15 years ago when I was running my, uh, my mutual fund, we were beating up on General Electric because General Electric were the first big companies to buy into global warming. And General Electric uh, was out there with this fantasy that, well, if we put solar panels on like 10% of Arizona, we could run the entire country. And of course, I mean, that's that kind of it's insane, right? It's just insane. Right. Well, this is a good transition then to one of the other targets of so th this documentary for those who haven't seen it, i mean i mean go see it but um the i guess there was a couple things the couple points to this documentary one was the very real scientific uh and economic analysis of the viability of these things and how that was a charade um but also there were he, this guy had a hit list for people in particular um, and one of them you mentioned earlier, I think, was Bill McKibben. Um, he was the founder of 350.org. He also led the Keystone Pipeline protests. Uh, he's really presented as a shill for invest, like malinvestments in the <laughs> green energy. Well, 
you know, Bill McKibben runs 350.org, and 350.org, of course, is the uh, carbon dioxide level his group wants to go down to. As far as I can tell, Bill McKibben, Bill McKibben is just, you know, the leftist in charge of, you know, the climate wing of the leftist movement. And, um, you know, I, I, view it, I view the climate movement as a political movement, and um, it's just one of the ways they're trying to socialize society. And, uh, you know, it's, Bill McKibben's in charge of that, and, and uh, he's got a lot of traction because, you know, he's, um, he, he's a prolific speaker and writer, and he's a professor at Middlebury College in Vermont. Uh, but he also, um, you know, he, he's got all sorts of connections that, you know, they tried to, the movie tried to depict him as profiteering off uh, biomass. Uh, you know, maybe that's true, maybe it's not true, I don't know. Uh, there's a funny scene in the movie. Is, uh, he's, Bill McKibben is being interviewed, and Bill McKibben can't remember who funds him. That was one of the most disturbing parts to me because I, as a founder, I mean, I've founded several companies. I could, I could not imagine ever being on the phone with anyone and saying, you know, the question was, are you funded by the Rockefeller organization? And, and he was literally like, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't recall. Who are your funders? Uh, to the degree that we have any money at all, it's come from a few foundations in which, Europe which ones? and U.S. Uh, let's see. The uh, I'm trying to think who the biggest uh, funders are. Uh, uh, there's a foundation in uh, based in Sweden uh, called I think it's called the Rasmussen Foundation uh, that I think has been the biggest funder. So you don't get money from Pew or Rockefeller or any of those big. No, we did. We Rockefeller. Brothers Fund gave us some money right when we were starting out. That's been useful too. But they no longer fund you. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't have. I don't have a sort of <laughs> really funder sitting in front of me. Uh, I mean, but that's usually something that people know. That is the biggest sign of bullshit that I can. <laughs> at least, like no one, no right, one right, cannot uh, recall yeah. who their found their their freaking investors are. Right. Um, I run nonprofits and businesses. And, uh, you know, people have asked me that question. If I don't want to tell you, I'm just going to say I'm not going to tell you. And there's, sometimes there's a very good reason for that because, you know, on, on my side of the debate, uh, our funders will get attacked by the other side. So, you know, they value their privacy. And so, you know, uh, I, I do too. But to sit there and deny that, oh, I don't know. <laughs> just right. to deny that they're funding, like, you know, not only is there unicorn power, but unicorn money is crazy. Yeah, I, it just struck me as so dishonest. And that scene, I, I don't know, maybe just as an entrepreneur, that scene really bothered me. It was just so dishonest that... To be honest, just say, well, I'm not going to tell you because, you know, either it's a proprietary secret or I don't. I want to protect my donors. Like that. I can understand that. Just say that. Okay, that's, that's perfectly rational. But to pretend like you don't know who they are, like there are none, is... is... <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, so Bill McKibben is explicitly anti-capitalist. Um, he's against he's against this phrase hyper individualism, which I'm not exactly sure what that means. I guess that means too much self ownership and too much enlightenment. <laughs> um, but you know, this is a this is a political movement. But you know, I, I guess just for the people who aren't on board with uh, my political or 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 your political take here. People who care about they, they you know avidly avidly believe in in climate change and the, and all the scare stories about it, uh, you know one of the funds I just like I, this is just interesting information for people. One of the funds that this movie covered is the Green Century Fund. It was recommended by Bill McKibben's organization, 350.org, and the fund is. 0.6% solar and wind, which I, I would imagine most people who contribute to this fund think that's mostly what they're getting by uh, by investing in this fund. And 99%, this is according to the, I'm going to just read a verbatim, 99% things like mining, oil and gas infrastructure, McDonald's, biofuel, Coca-Cola, logging and paper companies, banks, lots and lots of banks, including BlackRock, which I guess uh, is BlackRock, Black, BlackRock is a particular devil for the environmentalists. Yeah, and, and that's not unusual. Um, you know, I started paying attention to this 15 years ago when I was running my – I had an activist fund. Uh, we, were, we were beating up on companies and CEOs that were trying to kowtow to the Greens. Uh, but what you find out when you look into these funds is they're, 
they're really just index funds. Uh, some of them are tech funds. They're not really, there's nothing really green about them. Al Gore's uh, fund with um, uh, Dave Blood, Generation Death Management. It's, it's just a, a tech fund at best. It's a collection of mostly um, you know, non-fossil fuel stocks. Of course, then, you know, the irony is since everything depends on fossil fuels, everything really is a fossil fuel portfolio. Right. Al Gore also struck me as interesting because I the you know they they talked about his fund with David Bloom or David Blood. I mean, and uh, something I hadn't realized: this fund was founded in two thousand and four, in July of two thousand and four, uh, yeah. and Inconvenient Truth came out in two thousand and six. <laughs> uh, now, as someone who has been in business, my immediate question is. Who funded Inconvenient Truth? Because that seems like a convenient marketing expense. Uh, yeah, who knows? <laughs> uh, I mean, the, no the notion that there's no profiteering going on in climate, this is also some you know, humanitarian movement, is nuts. I mean, it's you've heard of big oil. Well, there's big green, big climate, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Al Gore has made hundreds of millions of dollars, if not a billion dollars, off his uh, climate hysteria. Uh, everything is done for profit. Um, you know, these, uh, it, it just, it, you know, nothing this big operates without money. And so, of course, you know, they're all for solar, all for wind. They're, you know, they're investing in the subsidies. Uh, they get all, all sorts of support from, from uh, big businesses who are, you know, happy to pay them to stay off their case. You know, don't, don't bother us. Um, it, there, there's a lot of money in the climate movement. It's not, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, it's a huge industry. You, you have a nice oil company. Yeah. It'd be a shame if we maligned you. Is, it's definitely a mob mentality and, and criminal mob mentality. All these things that have been happening to President Trump and, uh, say, Fox News and other Republicans over the last few years, uh, the, 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 the left has been doing this to climate skeptics for the last 20 years. I mean, they have marginalized us. They call us names. They call us deniers. They try to liken us to Holocaust deniers. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're, you know, they hit us first with these Alinsky tactics before they hit everybody else. So I just kind of chuckle. I, you know, I watch TV every night and I see, you know, uh, various media hosts complaining about being attacked by the left. And, and, but, you know, we, we experienced it first. And, uh, you know, welcome to the club. Why is environmentalism, like, why were you attacked first? Why is that such a sacred cow to them that it's more important that they attack climate, quote, climate deniers. I mean, literally, if you question anything, if you just say, well, it seems like maybe there's some warming, but I'm not really sure the amount and what we should do about it. Like, suddenly you're, uh, you're like a, a backwards ape who doesn't, who can't think for themselves and you're, you're subject to all sorts of derision. Why is that? Well, asking questions stops, you know, their quote unquote progress. Right. I mean, the, progress to them means doing what they want. And if people start questioning that, well, then there's no more, quote unquote, progress. So and, and they have <clears throat> they have to silence people who are raising the questions. Um, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. Uh, I came into this. I wasn't politicized. I mean, uh, uh, I, I, not, not terribly political, didn't really know anything about the environment. Uh, but just was curious about things, started asking questions. And I thought this mostly, mostly, mostly nonsense started, uh, you know, raising the uh, warning flag about that. And, and all this, you know, then I get attacked and not just attacked, but savaged. And, you know, they've gone after people that fund me, support me. Uh, it's just, you know, it's been very, very difficult, very challenging. And, and all I'm doing is asking questions. Yeah. And it seems like they have, uh, almost complete control of most of the corporate media as well because the it's at it's to the point now where the default assumed correct answer is that yeah. anthropogenic climate change is real and catastrophic those are that that's like uh you can't really question that even in mainstream media it's not just like the leftists are attacking yeah i mean there's not much media uh, that hasn't totally bought into climate hysteria. I mean, there's, you know, even at, even at Fox News, uh, a lot of, there's a lot of, of 
climate hysteria going on there. And, um, you know, it's once you get past the evening hosts, oh, my God, <laughs> you're on your own uh, or, or Fox and Friends in the morning. But the, the bulk of the, the bulk of the media is definitely hardcore climate act. I mean, they're they're the mouthpiece really for the climate movement, uh, just like they have been, you know, uh, with with Trump. I mean, it's it, it lines up almost exactly like that. You know, if I just take a survey of all of the leftist outrage, it all seems to be it's it's self-contradictory often. But one through line is is just the destruction of Western civilization and capitalism in particular. And, you know, the green movement has always to me really seemed like just um, Marxists with with better costumes, I guess. Um, Yeah. No, that that and that is the theme. Um, what what they're after is the destruction of society, so they can rebuild it the way they want it. Just you know, like the Bolsheviks did in 1917. Um, that's and 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 Mao did in uh, when he came to power in 1949. And it's the same thing today. And what's really ironic, you can see this in real time because they are looking as as, as coronavirus destroys our economy. Uh, these you know environmental leftists are trying to figure out, well, how can we exploit this? How can we go from coronavirus police state lockdown into climate police state lockdown? Because, you know, society is being destroyed right now. This is what we really want. Um, You know, they're not worried about getting the economy open. They're worried about how they can advance their agenda. Yeah, I've seen seen quite a few posts about, look at how beautiful it is that nature is coming back, right? And nature's taking back... uh, you know, there'll be pictures of uh, coyotes somewhere or uh, a pond that looks clean. And I don't know the status of it yep. before. Scott. Yeah. It's something I don't have a good grasp on. I don't know. I don't know how much you know about this, but how free is the market in energy generally? Like how much is the government involved in or governments generally involved in regulating prices, setting prices, subsidies, all this stuff? Uh, uh, um of course, the government is involved in all parts of our economy. Um, you know, the good news about where where we are in America is that there's just less of that. Um, yes, there you know there are, there are you know if you want to call them subsidies in the fossil fuel industry, uh, we call them tax breaks. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. So there, so there is some of that that goes on, uh, but you could take away all those subsidies, and, and I'm for doing that. I, I don't think anybody needs any subsidies. I think we should pay real prices for things. Uh, but you could take away all the subsidies and we would still be with fossil fuels because solar and wind, number one, don't exist without fossil fuels and, and don't exist without subsidies at all. Fossil fuels would exist without subsidies. Right. No, no, of, of that, I'm sure. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is the I'm sure you know the history of corn subsidies and the development of corn syrup. And like now we have I think we have corn and, and other crops being used for biofuel in a way that I'm not sure the free market yeah. would ever have produced biofuel. No, no, it, it wouldn't. I mean, the reason we have biofuels is because Iowa uh, is, you know, a battleground state. <laughs> I mean, that, that is the long and short of it. Uh, it's where the first primary is, and you have to go to Iowa and kowtow to the corn farmers. And uh, as a result, you know, we pollute our engines with uh, ethanol, um, you know, we make gasoline unnecessarily expensive. Ethanol does nothing for the environment. All it does is fat the purses of Iowa farmers. Um, I, I'd rather just give them the money and, and, you know, forget the ethanol. Yep. How much of this is about actual, like worried about climate change or, 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 or the human environment and pollution in the human environments? In other words, how much is connected to the quality of life of humans moving forward and how much is 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 connected to this vague idea that there could be warming yeah well i mean that's obviously a big question um you know i i think that the environmental movement today is 99 percent politics um you know if environmentalists are really interested in say the plastic problem you mentioned the kid line on all of coca-cola bottles and plastic bottles um, they really need to go to places like Africa and Asia, where they really have a problem with solid waste disposal. If air pollution bothers you, well, then you need to go to India and China and work on that. Because in America, our environment is clean and safe. Our skies are blue. Uh, yeah, I mean, is the air pristine? Well, it's as pristine as it's going to get, considering we're an industrialized society of 330 million people. Uh, it's as clean as it needs to be. 
there's no one in, in this country that suffers from air quality, anything that's in the outdoor air, unless it comes from nature, like pollen, but nothing that comes out of a smokestack or a tailpipe is hurting anybody. Um, you know, and, and there are a lot of people that work on environmental issues. And of course, if you, if you take a poll of the public, everyone's concerned. Um, and while everyone's concerned about the, the environment, few people actually take the time to learn anything about it. And so as a consequence, there are a lot of people who uh, feel the environment is an important issue, but uh, they're being misled. There's, there also seems to be this calculus which ignores half of the equation, which is we're presented with, uh, we're presented with this case of like, oh, here's here's the bad impact of of our human activity on the environment, and let's just assume that that's all it's all bad as bad as they say. Uh, here's this bad impact. What we need to do is stop the bad impact. But then they ignore the side of the equation, which is if we stop the bad impact, quote bad impact, it also stops. Uh, cheap energy and has what negative consequences for people? There's there's not a lot of appreciation for the lives that are saved through cheap energy at all. Uh, that that's true. Um, you know, forty years ago, Ronald Reagan uh, introduced into the government the notion of constant of uh, uh, cost benefit analysis when doing environmental regulation. And uh, it never really got implemented very well because EPA and bureaucrats figured out how to game the system. But, you know, there should be a cost benefit analysis done for environmental regulations. And, you know, you have to do the, the costs and benefits based on the best science and economics available. And one of the reasons I got into this is because um, when doing cost benefit analysis, I discovered that well, the costs tend to be real, but the benefits tend to be imaginary. And but they, but they would pretend they would pretend that the benefits were real. You know, like one of the the Obama administration was great at this. You know, they had the whole war on coal. It was premised on the notion that uh, emissions from uh, coal coal plant smokestacks were killing uh, upwards of almost six hundred thousand people a year. Okay, and and so you know when you value every life lost, every uh, every premature death at ten million dollars multiplied by. Um, you know, 600,000 lives. Well, there's no regulations that's not justified by that. But of course, the, no, the nothing that comes out of a coal plant smokestack kills anybody. Doesn't doesn't cause a cough or a weed, much less a death. So that whole part of the cost benefit analysis was fake. But the real cost of shutting down coal plants, well, th those costs were real. People lost jobs, and and jobs where um, you know there's nothing else to do if they lose yeah yeah you've you've got junkscience.com you popularized the term junk science one thing that i've seen in the last 20 years has been a shift from appreciation of science to worship of scientists can you mm -hmm. um, draw the distinction between those two yeah that, that's a great point uh, i love that point uh, science and scientists you know science is this terrific process developed through the enlightenment to help us discover how the world works um, and so, in my view, people who are scientists are people who do science. They are doing experiments, trying to figure out, you know, classical, classical liberal, uh, classical liberals doing science, uh, doing experiments. Um, that, that those are scientists to me. In contrast to today, you know, anybody who has a science degree considers themselves a scientist. Uh, today's headlines. You know, you read about how in the New York Times, how President Trump is trying to muzzle his science advisors, you know, like, but none of the people he's, you know, they, they're, he's accused of trying to muzzle are really scientists, they're just bureau public health bureaucrats. Um, these people in the climate who consider themselves scientists. Well, you know, the way science is done is you come up with um, a hypothesis, you collect data and test it, and you see whether your hypothesis is correct, and you go back to the drug board, do it over and over, over again. Um, in, with climate, it's completely different, and, and it has this has applications to uh, this whole coronavirus crisis. You know, climate is all based on these models, which project that you know in 80 years sea level rise is going to be 20 feet higher, 20 feet high, and uh, um, you know the temperature is going to be you know 10 degrees Fahrenheit warmer. Um, none of these models, like the coronavirus models, have ever been validated. Um, all they are is essentially a hypothesis, and you'd have to run the experiment and collect the data at the end and see but of course we don't do that we just we we figure out they, they figure out the model 
they run the scare, and then they go with that, and they call that science, and that's, of course, not science. Yeah, and, and not only have they not been validated, uh, I would say the credentials of the people that have been pushing these are in question because they've every model they've pushed has been invalidated. They have been invalidated over time. Well, it's it's true. None of them have been validated. None of the coronavirus virus models have been validated. Yeah, you know, then we have this whole problem of you know self-proclaimed scientists who go back uh, in time and try to figure out what the temperature was a thousand years ago. You know, it's a famous example of that is the so-called hockey stick, which I call the hokey stick. Um, you know, it purports to represent temperature change over the past thousand years based on a handful of, of uh, trees around the world. You know, they look at tree rings. Um, it's completely invalid. There's no way uh, to, to actually project global temperature. We have you know, tens of thousands of temperature monitoring stations around the world today, and what the temperature is is still a dispute. I don't know how you can say that 60 trees can tell you what the temperatures were for the last thousand years. It's totally nuts. Yet that hockey stick drove a lot of public policy during the 2000s. Yeah, I mean, you reminded me of there was that uh, XKCD uh, graphic where they kind of they tried to show like, look how look how the temperature has changed, kind of stable. And then it like hockey sticks at the end. Um, Yeah, but it turns out. Uh, all of the data prior to the most recent data was smoothed over periods of like a couple hundred years or something. So like if it had been doing this, you wouldn't know. They smoothed it out and at the end they let it vary. And so of course it looks like, I mean, it's just so dishonest, Yeah, um, but it's presented as truth. But when, when, when you have, you know, the bulk of the media out there saying, you know, presenting it as truth. It's, it's difficult to argue with, right? Because you can't get any airtime. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing that strikes me about um, the science thing is uh, science itself, just, just philosophically, science can't tell us what we should do. Science describes what happens in the world. It, it, like, science, science is descriptive, not proscriptive. Um, so you can't... Well, it, no matter what science says, it doesn't say anything about public policy because public policy needs to account for praxeological, like human action and motives and incentives and other factors. Like you can't just say the science says you got to pass this bill or right. have this policy. That's not how science works. Right. And, and you know, we hear this a lot from, say, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg. I call her Greta the climate puppet. She says we must listen to the science. Well, science doesn't really talk. And, you know, with science in the end, you get something like F equals MA. And there's a lot of things you can do with F F equals MA, but it doesn't really uh, lay out the public policy path. Right. Not at all. Um, And and, and it's it's one piece of an equation. Like, science may very well. So just, you know, society would have to struggle with a very real question. If if all of science actually proved that, let's say you're coal-burning plant that you're talking about with Obama. Let's say a certain number of people were dying from the coal emissions. Well, you would have to calculate <laughs> what yeah. happens if we don't have the coal emissions. Will more people die? Will things be worse? Like it's still a cost benefit equation, even if science is 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 100% demonstrating that there are real impacts that are bad. Well, that's true. And and you know this this used to be politically correct to do in the early days of cost benefit analysis you could do that sort of analysis but you can't really do that anymore because the notion of anybody dying is just too too politically incorrect and you just can't be associated with it uh, it's what's driving coronavirus hysteria today right right yeah this idea that one death is one death. enough to shut down the like life is inherently risky. Like we, we die from things. We, you know, uh, the idea that if, if really all we care about as a society is being safe, then we should just all be locked in padded rooms and, and, you know, <laughs> that should be the end of it. There's no freedom at all. We, we just need a robust economy for society to thrive. It's just, this is how it is. And, and we're finding out right now without a thriving economy, what the costs are going to be. We're going to, and these costs are going to go, you know, they're, we're going to see what they are next year and in the years to come. This is a horrible experiment we're doing. I, I, uh, not to be a doomsdayer, but I, I really think we're at this is depression. This is this is a depression that we're going into. Uh, what are your thoughts about the economic consequences of this moving forward? 
Well, they're horrendous. I mean, we have 26 million people today who have filed unemployment claims. Uh, it's incredible that, um, yet we're still an optimistic people because the market is still at 23,000, which is incredible. How, how could that ever happen? Uh, um, but yeah, I'm very worried about the economy. I understand what's going on and why President Trump is doing what he's doing. Unfortunately, this whole coronavirus thing has been awfully politicized because we have an election coming up. And, um, you know, as expensive as it is to, you know, these trillions of dollars that, uh, you know, Congress is just basically printing to to support people in, in a shut down economy, uh, it's, it's, it's almost like a necessary evil. Because if in, in my in my view, uh, if if President Trump is defeated in the fall, oh, my God, we're in deep trouble. So. Um, I, you know, I, I hate to see this. I hate to see the economy shut down. I hate to see, uh, you know, the government printing money. But I understand why it's being done. It's it's uh, it's frustrating too, though, because um, you know that the 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 bailouts are. I think I think they roughly cost every American ten k, but Americans are getting twelve hundred bucks. A lot of that money is is <laughs> going to. Um, the means of production, right? It's there. It's going into capital goods, or at least supporting um, the higher level, uh, higher orders of investment in in the economy. Uh, so I think that might actually be one of the things propping the stock market up. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. It's you know, kind of we, off topic you know, for us today, but let's go. <laughs> no, we have an incredibly complex economy, and the notion that you know Congress can come up with a bill in a week to figure out how to uh, distribute $2 trillion in aid is just ludicrous, right? It's, it, it, you know, you often hear the word sustainable, uh, unsustainable with the environment. Well, that, that's unsustainable. This whole keeping the economy shut down is unsustainable. And yeah, um, absolutely. I, I'm surprised people haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. And it, and, and it's weird because I think you'd have to be you have to be in a pretty cozy, high standard of living position to not viscerally understand the, the, emergency of not being able yeah. to go earn money and yeah. feed yourself like that's an emergency you've got to be disconnected from reality uh, um I, I i i you know i'm i'm fortunate i work at home uh all, all the time and i have for 20 years so uh but people that most people go out and people work in restaurants and and uh clubs and stores and um, I can't imagine what those, and, and they live paycheck to paycheck. I can't imagine what those people, how are they surviving? You know, I can't go to the grocery store and buy toilet paper. Uh, fortunately I had gone to the big box store and so I was, you know, fairly well stocked, but what is the average person doing? I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Can we shift topics just for a moment? Cause I, I, I know you have particular expertise, uh, with respect to the EPA and I don't want to let that topic go without, uh, without at least talking at a high level, uh, about it. You know, you've got a book about fixing the EPA. I think people like me, I just have a, I honestly, I just have a general disdain for the EPA. Cause all I remember is like reading about how they're trying to save some stupid frog while farmers trying to, you know, make a living or whatever. Can you talk about like what's wrong with the EPA from a high level? <laughs> well, what's wrong with the EPA uh, is is a, is a long time in the making. Uh, the problem is um, that most of what EPA does is based on politics and not science. And you know, let's concede that uh, fifty years ago, our environment was not nearly as clean as it is today, and um, we have made a lot of progress. Uh, as our environment has gotten cleaner, uh, EPA has grown and environmentalism has grown. And you think it would be the exact opposite. Uh, today, most environmental protection is done in the states, by the states. There are a few interstate, maybe international issues where there's a use for EPA. But our EPA is way too big. Uh, it's, it's at a point where uh, not only do they make work, they make work based on, on fraudulent science. And they become a, a political weapon, uh, President Trump. Um, you know, I was on the transition team for EPA, and we have all these plans. Uh, but the Trump administration is having, is having a hard time reforming EPA because you have 13,000 recalcitrant employees, politicized employees that don't like President Trump, don't want to reform EPA. They like what they were doing. And, you know, it's, it's like any other bureaucracy. You create it and never wants to go out of business. It just wants to expand. So they keep making up problems to keep themselves in business. 
So, uh, you know, we, we, if we need an EPA, it's a much, much smaller one. I mean, I think, the, I think the way a lot of people think about the EPA, though, is like, well, if we didn't have the EPA, we wouldn't have clean water and air. They're preventing the nuclear power plant from moving in next door to you and dumping waste into your uh, well water. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, you know, we, we have all these laws in place. OK, so it's, it's not 1970 anymore. Uh, the rivers aren't on fire. Uh, the skies are a lot cleaner. Uh, there are no uncontrolled toxic waste sites. Um, and while, you know, uh, and, and I think a lot of those laws need to be redone for the world we live in now. I mean, we are regulating the environment based on 1970s era laws. Uh, 50 years later, we need new laws. So all these laws are on sunset and be redone. Uh, but it's it's not the EPA that, you know, we have a a lot of a lot of why we're uh, our environment is so clean is because our culture has changed. Okay? Businesses, um, you know, there are obviously always bad actors, but generally speaking, uh, businesses try to be as clean as possible. They just don't want the bad press, if nothing else, or the you know uh, wrong kind of attention from the government or the media or the public. So, you know, it, it's a different planet than it was in 1970, and we haven't recognized that yet. I, I know we need to <laughs> we need to wrap up soon, so I, w- I want to get back to this documentary just for a moment. Um, you know, I, I do recommend people watch it. Uh, obviously, there's there's a lot of interesting information in it. Um, but the premise, as you pointed out at the beginning, the premise is still pretty much mankind is doomed. Um, I think it ends, the documentary ends with this contextless footage of an orangutan suffering for a reason we don't know. Um, and oh. then um, and then there's a Rachel Carson quote. Rachel Carson was, a, you know, I guess famous yeah. environmentalist, uh, scientist. And she says, humankind is challenged as it has never been challenged before to prove its maturity and its mastery, not of nature, but of itself. What do you, what is your, what is your message to people about the idea that um, humankind needs to rein in its, uh, you know, devastation of the planet in general, that humankind needs to be careful because we're treading on uh, thin ice and we're about to just go extinct. The earth is going to purge itself of our vile existence. Yeah. I don't have any apocalyptic visions of humanity. Uh, the, the only thing apocalyptic I can say is that if we allow environmentalists to take charge, a lot of people are going to die. Um, you know, you mentioned Rachel Carson, uh, Rachel Carson, you know, the environmentalists love her. She's a goddess because of silent spring. Um, as, as far as I'm concerned, her misinformation has resulted in the deaths of tens of millions of Africans from malaria and others around the world. Um, and, and that's what's in store for the rest of us if you let Greens be in charge. Um, you know, what we really need to do is we need to increase everybody's standard of living. Uh, we, we are projected to have 11 billion people on the planet by 2100. I mean, we're not going to live to see that. Um, but you know, for those people to thrive, they're all going to they're all going to want to have, have food, transportation, place to live. Um, and the only way that's going to happen is if they're wealthier and wealthier people take better care of the planet. So uh, I'm not apocalyptic at all. I mean, you know, uh, Paul Ehrlich, who wrote the population bomb in 1967, you know, he said that uh, the planet's carrying capacity was only at two billion uh, people. We're at seven point six billion right now. And going north, and we're doing great. People are living better lives than than ever before. So uh, I think there's no no need for um, no need to be apocalyptic. You, you know, overall, people will do the right thing. That is why there are 7.6 billion people now, because you know we have we have created uh, an economy that allows for that many people to thrive. And we're going to have a lot more people in the future, and we've got to let the economy grow so that those people can thrive. So uh, I'm going to insert one other thing because this is interesting. Um, tell me about the tell people about the the DDT hoax. I'd like to call it uh, yeah. because you mentioned Rachel Carson's uh, influence with respect to malaria in Africa, and I don't think people will know what you're talking about. Sure. So uh, Rachel Carson, uh, she wrote her famous 1962 book Silent Spring, uh, which she accused DDT of killing birds and you know, causing cancer in fish and just, you know, uh, just scaring the world about the application of chemicals. 
And, um, you know, the reality is much. And, and, and so this became attached to the bald eagle. The bald eagle kind of came to be a symbol of the evils of DDT. You know, uh, supposedly DDT was had driven the bald eagle to near extinction and was thinning eggshells and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and leading up to 1972, when the EPA banned DDT's use in the United States, and then environmentalists basically exported that ban to the rest of the world. And as a result, uh, DDT usage dropped in places like Africa and India, and tens of billions of people died over the years because they couldn't kill them. DDT was an incredible chemical, uh, non-toxic to humans, but toxic to mosquitoes. And, you know, and so the reality with DDT is that Rachel Carson was, of course, all wet. You know, the bald eagle didn't disappear because of DDT. The bald eagle had disappeared 40 years before DDT uh, was even invented uh, because it basically had been hunted to death. Uh, people, you know, it, it, it was a predator. People would collect its eggs. People would collect its feathers. So the DT was was hunted to near extinction. There's you know, news articles about this from the 1940s. Uh, DDT wasn't really invented on a large scale until World War II. Um, and by the time DDT went into maximum use around the uh, early 1960s, the, the bald eagle had already been on the rebound because hunting had basically been outlawed. Um, there are no experiments uh, that show that environmental levels of DDT uh, thinned eggshells or that of any other great bird, peregrines, uh, pelicans, uh, what have you. Uh, there's just no evidence of that. Uh, DDT is, was not a threat to human health. You know, when, when the concentration camp survivors were liberated in 1945, the first thing that happened to them is that they were doused in DDT. Why? Because it, it killed the bugs and was safe. And that, those are just facts. Um, do we need DDT today? Well, uh, there are places where it could still be used. But, you know, the problem with the attack on DDT and the ensuing attack on all other pesticides uh, is that, you know, we have not developed different, different and newer pesticides. So mosquitoes have developed resistance. DDT and other pesticides, and a lot of these, you know, vector-borne diseases are slowly coming back because, uh, you know, having a pe- using pesticides is politically incorrect. Uh, yeah, thank you for explaining that because I, I remember, I remember as a kid growing up in the '70s that I remember. I don't know if it was in school or on television, but I definitely remember commercials about the or propaganda, I guess, about the bald eagle and DDT and the thinning of the eggshells and like ah. Um, so it's, it's very common propaganda and it's all wrong. Yeah. I have a piece on junk science called a hundred things you should know about DDT and it goes through all the DDT myths. This is that, one of the things that's amazing about the DDT story to me is that, uh, it's something that a lot of us grew up with. We believe a hundred percent it, it was scientific, uh, and, and yet was completely false and has never been <laughs> retracted. Like no, the main, no one. No one really talks about, oops, we killed so, a bunch of people in Africa. So I mentioned that EPA banned DDT in 1972. What I didn't mention was that before DDT, before EPA banned DDT, EPA held um, nine months' worth of hearings, collected 7,000 pages of testimony, or maybe seven months of hearings and 9,000 pages of testimony. It doesn't really matter. Uh, long hearings, huge, huge amount of testimony, and in the end, EPA ruled that um, DDT didn't pose a threat to human health or the environment or wildlife. But the DDT, um, but the first EPA administrator, William Ruckelshaus, <clears throat> he banned, <clears throat> excuse me, he banned DDT anyway because uh, he was secretly part of the Environmental Defense Fund, which was the uh, advocacy group lobbying to have DDT banned. Even the EPA admitted it wasn't. Uh wasn't actually the the threat that they that people were claiming, but they banned it anyway. Threat, right? Well, um, Steve, thank you, thank you very much for taking the time to to join us today. I want to have you back and talk more extensively about uh, climate change and some other issues in the future. But I think this was a good introduction to you and for people who don't know junk science. I think uh, I think this is good, and and I, I hopefully people can can watch this video and then and then check out your website. Uh, just to be clear, you, you had nothing to do with the video. We're just critiquing it together <laughs> together here. Um, any final messages for our audience? Uh, you know, um, I, I just tell 
people to, you know, uh, God gave you a brain so you can think. And you don't just have to accept things at face value, which is how environmentalism works. People, they just, you know, they expect you to uh, just believe it. And um, I, I, I never did. I always asked questions. And that's really the most important skill that you can have, to, you know, curiosity. It's a very important trait and skill. Well put. Thanks for coming, Steve. I uh, really appreciate it. All right, Carl. Thank you very much.